This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, here we are in October, second weekend, and I somehow last week completely missed the fact that we're in the middle of the the USCCB's announced yearly annual Respect Life Month. This is something that we ought to to give some weight to. Um, the USCCB gives us a whole month to look at it, which is, of course is never enough, but at least it's a full month. Let's take some time and look at a couple of different angles of Respect Life that maybe we don't always take the time to look at. We're familiar with um, all of all of the advocacy that we can do around the question of abortion, whether it be the, the 40 Days for Life uh, prayer vigil, which I'm a, a huge supporter of, or whether it be taking that prayer into action by, uh, by volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center, providing resources for, uh, for those who are facing difficult life circumstances that could lead them and make them abortion vulnerable. All of these things are part of Respect Life Month because first and foremost— Respect Life Month is about recognizing, upholding, and defending the dignity of every human person just by virtue of the fact that they're made in the image of God. And that's going to go far beyond the question of abortion, although it's going to deeply inform that, uh, but it's going to go into all other areas of our life as well, not to diminish abortion, but rather to say all of these areas are just as vitally important uh, looking at the human, the, the the dignity of the human person, as is this issue of abortion. To talk about that today, we're going to be talking with Krista Corbello. She's the founder of Even This Way, which we're going to talk about in a little while. Uh, she's the board president of Rehumanize International and is just deeply invested in the pro-life movement and the consistent life ethic. Krista, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your work and I'm glad to be here. First of all, let's start with the issue that everyone uh, thinks of when we first talk about Respect Life Month, and that's the issue of abortion. We mentioned in the intro that you were the the founder of Even This Way, and it's something that we don't often think about. We have ministries for those who have um, who are contemplating abortion. We have ministries for those who have suffered uh, the effects of an abortion close to them. So whether that be uh, Project Rachel, Rachel's Vineyard, uh, Silent No More ministries where women who have experienced abortion, men who have gone through the pain of an abortion themselves, where they can go and process. But Even This Way, which you can find over at eventhisway.org, is uh, to help every sibling survivor. Uh, the mission is forgiveness for families, compassion to communities, and healing to the hurting. So let's talk about where even this way came from and how it helps to bring healing to those who find out that they had a sibling who was aborted. Sure. So even this way uh, was born from my own life experience, actually. And my first kind of in with the consistent life ethic was through the abortion issue and being involved in pro-life um, advocacy and pro-life education for high school and college youth, mostly. Um, and through my education, I, I mean, I gave hundreds of talks over the course of many years Um because the issue was so forefront in the way that I looked at the world and the way that I spoke about the world, um, my own story of origin kind of unfolded over the course of the first several months of me doing that. 
And um, I, I found out little bits of information probably for the first year that I was giving talks and sharing my story a little bit differently every time because I would just find out all these different details. Um, and, you know, shout out to all my students who from our uh, youth programs in Louisiana at Louisiana Rights Life. Um, it's called Pulse, and they they really experienced it with me. They got to witness what I was going through as I found things out. And really, the last leg of my story that I discovered was that my biological father had an abortion. Now, I wasn't raised with my biological father. I didn't meet him until my um, like twenty two late college, mm -hmm. um, right before I graduated. And so that relationship had its own like rockiness and difficulty. And so to find that out was was very painful for me because my education efforts through Louisiana Right to Life were secular. Um, the Louisiana is a very Catholic and Christian state. Right. My my education was very secular. I spoke in detail about abortion methods, like how they worked. And um, so to find out that I had a sibling that died that way and all the statistics that I knew at the time about Louisiana abortions, abortions in, uh, in the United States, like all those numbers mm -hmm. became very real for me because now they included my sibling. And I knew, I knew from the time that I started giving those talks that I was considered for abortion. My parents were abortion vulnerable. My mom was an immigrant. I basically was the poster child for the 1990s slogan of Planned Parenthood, which was every child a wanted child. I was yeah. the ultimate unwanted child. And so when I found out about my aborted sibling was the first time that I was, I really clicked in my head that, oh, I could have died by abortion. And that that, that took me on this like deep journey of, of it really, I went to a place of depression. It was very painful for me um, to understand my own experience. Um, I think my feelings were so complex that I didn't have words for them. I didn't know how to explain myself. Um, I'm usually really in tune with my emotions and, and things like that. But at that time in my life was actually also the first time in my life that I, I asked God, like, could you even be here for me? Like, I don't even know that that I that you could walk me through this, that I could ever feel okay again. Um, and that was a really hard feeling. And though I did go to Project Rachel and Rachel's Vineyard, those were wonderful events for me. And I'm thankful that I got to experience that and be um, among post-abortive folks and people who have felt the sting of abortion in their family. Um, but what I kind of say to people is that it felt like a, you know, a square peg in a round hole. Like right. it, it didn't quite work for me because I didn't have an abortion. Um, it was my parent. And, and even so, I think my experience is different because I didn't share a womb with my sibling. And from what I see in my work, um, which is very little at the time, I, it's still a very baby organization. Um, people who share a womb with their sibling have a very different experience than what I had. And I still had a really uh, difficult time. Um, probably, of course, over the course of a year, I was very depressed and didn't laugh, didn't smile. Um, I remember my friends made comments about that, like, wow, I haven't heard you laugh like that in a long yeah. time, like the first time I laughed. Um, so it was born of a place of experience and pain and like wanting to be there for other siblings. Um, so that's where even this way came from. We don't often think about um, the the long-term effects of our own choices, right? Even Even the long-term effects on ourselves, much less the long-term effects on those who are around us. And this is one of the things that the church talks about with the sacrament of confession is that our sin, whatever, whatever sin that happens to be, whether it's the sin of, of an abortion or the sin of telling a lie, whatever that sin is, 
Um, and that's not to diminish the sin of abortion. It's to say that even a lie has effects that wound not only our relationship with God, but also with the community around us, with the whole church. So that being the case, it's important for us when when we sin, whatever the sin is, for us to approach God, absolutely, but then also to seek healing for the community around us. Uh, and so I love that this is the work that you're doing to help those who are impacted by uh, someone else's choice for abortion to find some semblance of healing. And let's talk about some of the ways that that, that was experienced by you, because I'm sure that to some extent, as you realized that you were considered for abortion, there's some existential questions. Uh, why am I here and my sibling is not? Uh, was uh, How could my parents not want a sibling? And does that somehow relate to how they want me or not want me? And that that's not just that individual one moment choice. Now you've got a lens through which to view the whole of your growing up that shifts everything that you thought that you knew. Absolutely. It was very existential. I think that's the best adjective for what was going on in my mind and in my heart at that time. Um, for me, there was even a lot of survivor's guilt. Like, why did I live and my sibling die? Um, we were basically in the same exact situation, um, but I, I got to live. I, I was I was the one that was saved, that was, was spared. And, you know, obviously I do a lot of my work because my mom, you know, my mom made a life-giving choice for me. And, and that's why I'm such a loud advocate and a loud voice um, for the unborn because my mom chose life for me. But on top of that, I, I want to be a voice for my sibling who never got to have a voice. And I, I think all the time about the life that they could have lived. Would we have been alike? Would we have looked alike? Do we, would we have, have had the same, um, the same hobbies with interests? And so having those thoughts and my head were very existential, not not just about what if I hadn't been born? What if I hadn't gotten to see everything that I got to see and experience and lots of laughs and, and la laughter and love and joy, but also why didn't my sibling get to do that? Why didn't my sibling in the exact same situation? Um, but it was also very, it was kind of, it was, it was depressing uh, also because I felt I felt like that I was helpless. There was nothing that I could do about this. And, um, and sometimes there can be feelings of mistrust uh, between sibling, uh, surviving siblings like me and um, our parents. And I already had kind of a rough story because my biological father wasn't in my life until I was about 22. That was the first time that I met him. Um, so knowing the kind of backstory of my mom and his relationship when she got pregnant, knowing all of that, like I felt like there was some freedom too, because now I understood the full story, which I didn't get as a little girl. No one really told me all the truth because it was so dark mm -hmm. and so heavy. Um, it, there was, and I think a lot of siblings who find out about um, their sibling who died by abortion, they might feel the same way, even though it's this very sad, heavy feeling, depression and existential crisis almost. There's a feeling of relief, like, sometimes you just kind of know like there's an intuition that siblings have and maybe they're looking for um, answers their whole life they're, they're they hear something from their aunt or they hear something from their grandma and they're trying to put pieces together so when they find out about the abortion um, of their sibling something clicks in them because especially I think when they share a womb with their sibling there's something that clicks I had a sibling tell me 
one time that um, her whole life, she felt so sad. Even when she was a five-year-old little girl, she would, she would cry in the mirror all the time. She would, she felt sad. She didn't understand. And when she was 25, she found out about her mom's abortion before her. So her sibling would have been older than her. And she, the first thought that she, she had after finding out about her mom's abortion, she said, I was born into a womb of death. And that's why I was so sad growing up. There was something off. And I felt like another sibling told me that they used to count their family members and they would always ask their parents, like, is someone missing? Is someone missing? I feel like someone's missing. And, you know, mom and dad had to tell them, like, no, no one's missing, that everyone is here. But no, when she found out about the abortion, she said, that's why I asked that as a kid, because I felt like someone was missing. Um, so there there can be like those feelings of relief when, when you find out the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all very nuanced. Um, the experiences of siblings, I don't, it's kind of like being a child of divorce. All, all divorce, children of divorce have different experiences, but there are some common threads. Right. And I find that the, from the siblings that I know, um, who I mostly have met from giving my talks, um, that's, that's what they've told me, that they, they relate to that. And I think even siblings, um, survivors of miscarriage, they, they can feel kind of some sort of similar something similar um though i will say that there is one kind of big difference and this is um an anecdote from dr philip nay um he he studied and kind of hypothesized that what we experience is called pass post abortion survivor syndrome and the, the the elements that i just told you the factors that i told you are things that we experience that were studied in psychology and um when he talks about the difference between those who whose siblings died by miscarriage versus those whose, whose siblings died by um, abortion. The, this is kind of the anecdote he tells. He said, he talks about a family, they go to a beach, they're on a cliff. Um, having a sibling die from miscarriage is like a, the sibling or the other child like falls off the cliff mm-hmm. and you, there's something, you know, there's sad, there's sadness and there is loss and there's grief, but at the end of the day, it's like life happens sometimes and it was an accident and it was nobody's fault kind of thing. Whereas in the case of abortion, that same family, you know, going on the beach and spending time on the cliff, like a, a sibling dying by abortion is like a parent pushing off one of the kids off the cliff. And so the surviving sibling feels grief plus in the worst cases, feeling like they could never get over it. They could never trust their parents again. That in the worst cases, it's, it's very much like, a, I can't move on from life. I can't get over this. Um, so I've been researching this for two years and that's, that's yeah. kind of the best example I've seen. One of the things that, um, that I'm very cognizant of is that everybody grieves differently. We, and we all have our own, we, you know, we can't predict how someone's going to grieve, nor can we tell them that they're doing it wrong, right? We all grieve the way that we grieve. Uh, the way that I, I picture that as you're talking about, um, the, the crisis of, uh, a family member falling off a cliff versus a parent pushing them off the cliff. Uh, one of the best pictures of, of how we operate psychologically comes from the movie um, Inside Out by Pixar. And when that, that core memory, that little glowing orb gets shattered or gets lost or gets taken away, that whole island that's built on that core shuts down. And I've experienced this in grief in my own life, uh, not in the same circumstances, but when, when everything that we knew to be true, uh, when one little thing in that shifts, 
it shakes the whole foundation. Is anything that I knew true anymore? And how do I now make sense of reality given this new information? We're talking today with Krista Corbello, who is the, the founder of Even This Way. You can find out more by going to eventhisway.org. So you mentioned that you went through this existential crisis, this period of, of depression and, and really mourning. Talk about what it was that, that finally began to allow the sun to rise again, allow the joy back into your life. What was it that, that kind of stabilized that uncertainty to allow you to begin building again? I think having, um, being a part of Rachel's Vineyard and having a memorial service was very important for me. Um, we got to speak, we got to, throughout the retreat, one of the exercises they gave us was to write a letter to our, for me, my sibling, to the aborted child. And I, I wrote this letter and it was, it was very much a letter from a big sister because I am a big sister. I have other siblings. I have, I was raised with two younger sisters. And so to speak to my, to my sibling, as if I were speaking to a younger sibling is what I got to do in my letter. And I, I read it at the memorial service. I got a little candle. Um, I wrote this song years prior when my grandmother died and it was a song of loss. And something that I do as a songwriter is <laughs> this happens all the time. I go back to an old song with a similar feeling um, or experience. And that, that feeling of grief that I originally wrote for my grandmother when she was dying, my Lola in Tagalog, um, I, I went back to it when I was grieving the, the loss of my sibling, the death of my sibling, which feels weird because it's someone that I didn't know. My grandmother lived with us from time to time here in the States. She would live in the Philippines. And, and it felt weird that I was going to, to this song again because it was such a special song to my, to my Lola. Um, but I, I played that song at the memorial service. And, um, and there was something very meaningful about that for me too. Um, because and actually I rewrote part of it and, and gave a new new meaning to that song by adding in new elements. And um that was very meaningful for me. I'm a very artistic person. I think um art can be very therapeutic for, for people like us who uh, have experienced such um loss and grief and it's almost traumatic the event. Um so singing that song at the memorial service and having I had like one of my best friends uh came beside me and you, you were allowed to have someone stand beside you. And um, one of my best friends in the pro-life movement, the pr first person that I told to um, when I found out about my aborted sibling, her name's Alex. She was my co-director when I was at Louisiana Rights Life and um, she was there beside me. And it was very meaningful to have them, even though they didn't have that experience to have someone who knew me, who's seen me uh, develop my story and figure it out um, over the course of my time at Right to Life. And, um, yeah, I think that's very important to have some sort of moment where you can have um, people next mm -hmm. to you. For me, physically, they were next to me, and and a moment to memorialize your your the aborted child. For me, my sibling. Yeah. Um, so those were those were kind of the biggest moments. I think you mentioned here that you were at Louisiana Right to Life for a number of years. Now you're the board president of Rehumanize International. In your work with others who have gone through something similar, do you see any difference uh, that can be attributed to the fact that you were already involved in pro-life advocacy before you found out? I think for me, 
being involved in in my in the pro-life movement beforehand gave me a lot of compassion. Um, when I found out about my aborted sibling, my, it was because I asked my father, my biological father, are you glad that I wasn't aborted? And that's whenever he told me the truth about, yes, yes, of course, I'm glad that you, you weren't aborted. I, and I aborted a child and I was not angry at him. A lot of people feel anger towards their parents and distrust. And, um, and of course I had my own negative feelings about the whole situation. But because I had been in, up to my eyeballs in the pro-life movement before that, I, I, I very much preached a no judgment, you know, yeah. a no judgment policy. And I, I, how could I have, after a year of giving pro-life presentations where I'm telling people to be compassionate, how could I have responded with, with anger towards him? I only could have responded with compassion. And I think that's one kind of benefit to being in the pro-life movement for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, um, being in the pro-life movement made it, Uh, like really hard to process my own feelings because yes, I'm very against abortion. Yes. I'm a strong pro-life advocate. Um, And I was very wounded at that time. And I was giving these talks publicly. I was crying at 50% of my talks and it was just very heavy because it just hit so close to home. And there was a time where I just had to say, I can't do this anymore. I emotionally can't do this anymore. And the way I kind of described it to my therapist and close friends was that if someone had their sibling die by a car accident, like a gruesome car accident, would you expect them to like give hundreds of presentations about the gruesome details of their death um, with pictures like over and over again? Like that would be, that's just re-traumatizing over and over. So taking a break was really good for me. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I've always been very uh, cognizant of we go out for the 40 days for life. I ran a couple of campaigns in the Tulsa area and you're out there and you're, you're praying and you see person after person enter into the clinic and it's very easy. And I've watched it happen in others to get overwhelmed, to get angry and even to get bitter uh, at the situation and to lose that edge of compassion and enter into a, a place of just anger, which can be maybe interpreted even as righteous anger And I think that that happens at the point that we say um, this awful thing is happening and it's on me to stop it. And so we get this sense of failure as all of our prayers seem to be fruitless as we see people person after person after person enter. And there is this, uh, I think, this necessity for us as we advocate for these pro-life positions to keep in mind the dignity of the human person, including that person walking into the clinic, including that person who drove that person to the clinic, and and to allow ourselves with the eyes of God not to look in, in rage, not to look in anger, but to look with compassion. When he sees the crowd coming and they're following after him and they are just looking for some kind of solace and comfort when they're following after Jesus for the next miracle— um, he looks on them with love. He looks at them with compassion. And so how do you, as you're talking with siblings who have experienced this, or you're working with Rehumanize International, uh, how do you convey maybe tools uh, to be able to see that person with compassion rather than allow yourself to feel the failure, to get upset, and to maybe re- respond in ways that ultimately are unhelpful? 
So I think with with sidewalk advocacy, which yes, it's 40 days for life, absolutely get get in front of those clinics and be be praying. I just went to the Planned Parenthood in Pasadena. Um, I live in LA now, and I absolutely think that people should continue to do that. And I think it's important for us to like go into each day of sidewalk advocacy as yeah. if the last one didn't happen. And I think treating each person individual um, walking into the clinic or each day at the clinic as as a new slate, like the people going into the clinic don't know that you were there the last 39 days or whatever of the 40 days for life. And so they they're not seeing it the way that you're seeing it. And yes, it, it can be it's easy to feel frustrated. Um, I, I think of this one, one time where um, this woman was going to what's Delta clinic in Baton Rouge. I used to live in Louisiana, obviously um, Delta clinic. And um, people were just yelling at her and telling her she was going to hell. And, and she was getting very frustrated and, and eventually other people were talking to her and saying, Hey, I'm post abortive. We're here for you. We, we don't want you to have this abortion come to find out she had already had the abortion. This clinic, Delta Clinic in Baton Rouge, Louisiana is so such a terrible clinic that um, they botch abort abortions all the time. And so they have a second appointment to follow up to make sure they completed the abortion properly. Um, so she was there for her second, her follow-up appointment. And when I, whenever I went to talk to her, um, I just said, look, you had a hard decision to make. I know that you care about your other living ch children that she mentioned to the other sidewalk advocates. And I said, I'm, it sounds like you had a really tough decision to make. And I'm sorry that you had to make it because she also had health choices. And right. she said that she had, her doctor told her she would die if she went through with this pregnancy. And I said, I'm just so sorry that you had to make that decision. And she came over, she came across the parking lot and hugged me yeah. when she was just flipping off the other sidewalk advocates. And I think, um, when we are responding with anger, it's not helpful to the post abort or the people who are walking into the abortion clinic and you don't know where they're coming from. And I only found that out after she, she told me. Um, but I think, as you said, like my experience with um, finding out my story, um, I think because it came to me over such a long period of time, like my story really unfolded over several months, I think, um, at first it was very much about, oh, my life was spared. I, it was all about me because I got to live and I didn't go through, my parents didn't go through an abortion for me. And then as it, it unfolded, I saw, oh, this was my mom's experience. This was my Lola's experience. This was my biological father's experience. And, and for me, my, like my consistent life ethic was being born at that time because I was seeing, oh, this is what my mom was going through. Yeah. Her mom wanted to disown her. Oh, this is what my dad was going through. And and after his abortion, this is how he felt. And so I really got to see all the different characters, so to speak, who were who are part of my story. And and that's how I got into the consistent life ethic. Um, with Rehumanize International. We're talking today with Krista Corbello. She is the board president for Rehumanize International, also the founder of Even This Way, a ministry that serves those who have lost siblings to abortion. Find out more about them by going to eventhisway.org. We're going to put a whole bunch of links over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at Outside the Walls. And don't go anywhere because there is so much more to this conversation as we dig into the consistent life ethic and how it relates to some topics you might not have thought about. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Krista Corvallo, who is the founder of Even This Way. Find out more information about them over at eventhisway.org. She's also formerly with the Louisiana Right to Life and Raging Cajun Catholics. Uh, currently now is the board president for Rehumanize International. We're so glad to have you here on the show today. Thanks for being with us. Yes, thanks for having me. So we're talking about consistent life ethic. We're talking specifically about your experience finding out that you had a sibling that was aborted. And we're getting into, as you've gone through that process, you've um, mourned, you've done some things, some retreats that have been healing to you with Rachel's Vineyard and some other uh, other activities. You're com- continuing to be very active in sidewalk counseling. And then you begin to consider um, that the... the th- the emotions and the just the devastation experienced by uh, the rest of your family members on finding out this this situation. So, that being the case, when we individually go through that kind of of trauma or that kind of of grief and begin to see the grief of others, it changes us. All of a sudden, we begin to see that person not as an opponent, but oh, I understand how that decision would be made. I, I don't agree with that decision. Um, and, and I would do everything that I can to keep someone else from making that decision. But all of a sudden, I begin to see the humanity that was forced, or at least they perceived, forced into that decision. And that changes the way that we look at Respect Life, a Respect Life Month. At Now it's not just an issue of abortion, although abortion is a huge thing that we need to be focusing on. But it also goes into the other issues that touch on the dignity of the human person and all the ways that that can manifest. So take us from that point now, Krista, and into now your advocacy in what's known as a consistent life ethic. Sure. So as I was at my tail end time of at Louisiana Right to Life was when I was, um, I always say auditioning because of my theater background, interviewing <laughs> for <laughs> interviewing to be on the board of Rehumanize International, which my involvement with Rehumanize International really increased over time. First, it was just having them come to our youth events. Then it was um, going to their events. And I spoke at one of their events about adoption and then I won the Create Encounter um, Pro-Life Arts Contest that they put on every year. And I think they're taking submissions right now, actually. And after that, they invited me to apply to be on the board. And so really over time, being more and more involved with them and looking at the world through a consistent life ethic lens, of course, but to me, just a purely Catholic lens um, in seeing the dignity of every human person, um, no matter the circumstance, which of course includes preborn babies um, and, you know, pregnant people, pregnant women, um, post-abortive parents, mm-hmm. all of all of these different things. And for me, I think the next step was just because of my environment. I was, I was living in Louisiana at the time and the death penalty is still like such a huge thing in Louisiana and, and being educated on it and hearing uh, for me, it's always the testimonies of people, numbers and, and statistics um, are very powerful, but for me, it's even more powerful when it's coupled with 
someone's testimony and someone's story. And so to hear of these horrible things happening in the Louisiana justice system with the death penalty and even having certain politicians like pushing for them not just to be continued, but to be expanded, like bringing back firing squads, like like barbaric, barbaric practices. And to to know that for me, it's it's even even in someone's guilt, some they don't deserve to be executed. I, I don't believe that even if someone is guilty, they don't deserve to be killed. And I know that's kind of a radical belief, um, especially in South Louisiana. <laughs> well, and not because of anything of their own. The, the, the question of deserve is a, you know, a big question. But the fact that that person bears the image of God, nothing that we do can stamp that out. Right, nothing can can take away that dignity, uh, despite our best efforts to do so. That we all have been given this grace. The church offers us and encourages us to find any other possible way. Which, of course, here in this day and age, we have many other possible ways uh, to to preserve that life, to still uh, to hand on punishment for an offense, but to do so in a way that doesn't close the door on the possibility of repentance in the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for, for me too, in, in Louisiana, it's very much, it's so systematic. It's, um, it's inherently racist in slave states like Louisiana. And it's tragic to see that there's, it's not even, it's, it's not even just because what's dependent on is the race of the victim and the race of the perpetrator or the, who, Mm -hmm. the person who is accused and the, it's kind of like correlated, like the more likely of you getting the death penalty is dependent on the victim, the race of the victim and the race of the, the accused. Um, again, which is just so tragic because it's, it's to me, a living proof that the, that slavery is still um, impacting today's society. Right. And, so, and, and these are, I mean, obviously these are statistics that one could look up and see. So this is, you know, um, St. Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. And so we have to be aware of what are the ways that our society devalues human life, whether that be allowing for abortion or whether that be um, the, the, the problems that we have inherent in our justice system and in our prison systems. These are things we have to look at and as Catholics stand up for and say, the dignity of every human person is involved here, and we have to advocate for for true justice, a justice that's from heaven and not a justice that somehow we've created here on earth and try to impose. Absolutely. And I, I think a lot of people have a, an issue with the consistent life ethic because abortion is the gravest issue of our time. I think the, just the numbers alone are, yeah. are humongous. And it's I, I, I don't like to, um, what do I call it? I guess compare tra- tragedy. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's fair to the people involved and the people affected by these tragedies. Like just because my life was personally impacted by abortion, and that's the thing that I talk about the most, doesn't mean that my life is more important or my story is more important than someone who was unjustly accused and put in prison and on death row for decades mm-hmm. and lost most of their life being in prison. And anyway, I just I think 
a lot of people take issue with a consistent life ethic, but to me, it's just about dignifying every single person, and especially in their experience. I, I think you can't take that away from them. Mm-hmm. Now, you brought up the issue of race, and you talked about it specifically in relation to uh, the death penalty in Louisiana. But I want to explore this a little bit as well, because you are a, a first-generation American, a second-generation uh, Filipina immigrant. I, I want to talk a little bit about, as a person who is uh, AAPI, uh, a, American, Asian, Pacific Islander, uh, tell me a little bit about your experience of of race in the United States and in Catholicism, because we often see the topic brought up in terms of African-American versus Caucasian. What's been your experience of this? Sure. I thank you for asking me that. Thank you for giving me a place to, to share this. Um, I have reflected on this for my whole life, really, because even when I was in grade school and we were learning about the civil rights movement, I remember asking my teachers, multiple of them, if if I grew up in the civil rights movement, where would I have been? Would I have been in a white school or would I have been in a black school? And I never got a straightforward answer on that. And I wanted to know where I fit in American history, which is difficult to understand um, when your mom is an immigrant. Like your, yeah. your, your history starts with mom moves to America, the end. <laughs> um, so I wanted to know where I fit in the movement because I think, I think everything was literally black and white. Yeah. Um, and I think the conversation about race is, is very black and white. And it, it just goes to the um, polarization of everything in our culture, in our country, politically, um, even sometimes spiritually, even in within the Catholic faith. Yeah. And I always felt not like either of those. And I understood everyone's side and I always felt very middle ground. And with the rise of like Black Lives Matter and everything like that, of course, I'm very supportive of um, justice for all these victims of police brutality and and violence. And we should be against all acts of violence, every single act of violence, um, no matter the circumstance. And uh, I think when it turned into violence against Asian Americans, particularly women, when the rise of those kind of crimes were, were showing up on uh, in the news and on TV, on the internet, um, that's when I felt oh, wow, this is what it feels like to feel unsafe. And so whenever I started seeing people kind of, especially I was raised in South Louisiana, like most people there are white, French, and 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 Black. And there's very few, very few Asians down there. But um, when people started saying like, and Asian violence, like that, there's something that feels really good about that. Like, wow, you, you recognize that this is violence against people who look like me and especially Asian American women like me. And it, it was very affirming. I I guess I could say it was very affirming because there was a time when all of that was happening, when I was afraid to go, I like to do 5Ks with my mom. And I was, I like to go walk around my neighborhood, but at that time I felt too scared to, and I was kind of even too scared to admit like that I didn't want to go walk around my neighborhood because I, especially by myself, because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if something could happen to me and talking to other Asian Americans. Now I live in Los Angeles um, and having Asian American friends who understand the experience, who share the experience of being second generation immigrant and, and the difficulties that that can bring is um, it's all very new to me because I'm just moved to California last June. Um, 
but it's very it's very exciting to for me to kind of explore my where where my activism can go and i'm I do feel like I'm still developing as an yeah. activist. Of course, I have a strong pro-life background and moved into anti-death penalty and CLE through Rehumanize. And I think I'm excited to see even more what, what I can do with AAPI activism and um, and just, you know, the leadership of places like Catholic Speakers of Color. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really exciting for me, too, because... Again, and I keep saying this, I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, being raised in South Louisiana, like, I guess Catholicism Catholicism there is very French and moving to Southern California now is, is, and being able to see my Catholic faith in the context of being Filipino is very exciting. And I didn't, there's so much, there's, the church is so colorful and I I don't mean just race. I, I mean, in all the, all the traditions and all the the things that people do like the special christmas things that filipinos do mm-hmm. that's exciting that's exciting and we should not feel resentment towards that we should not feel threatened by that we should we should rejoice we should rejoice in a colorful church and a colorful faith um because if we were all the same it would be so boring you know so let's look at this in light of Catholicism. We're talking about consistent life ethic. We're talking about, you talked about the slogans that you saw end um, Asian American violence, uh, violence against Asian Americans, to be clear. Let's, uh, a slogan only gets us so far, right? Now we have to take our Catholic faith, recognize the dignity of the human person, and turn that into prayer and into action. So for those of us who are not, Filipino-American, how do we uh, take our Catholic faith and move that into ways that are helpful for those who are experiencing violence or who are experiencing uncertainty because violence has been present? How do we stand up uh, and not only realize but advocate for the dignity of every human person, be it through the topic of abortion, through the topic of the death penalty, or in this case, through the topic of of racial reconciliation and racial justice? I think listening is a big thing. That's why I feel so thankful to have my voice heard today. And I know there's not, just like there's not one way to look Filipino, there's not one way to to be an advocate for a Filipino or an Asian American or the unborn person. And I think um, through listening, as we kind of talked about earlier, that listening to people's stories and showing compassion um, can only help us grow in love and, and charity for the dignity of every single human person. Um, when the Asian American violence was happening, I remember I had a friend call me, um, the two friends called me. One was an, another Asian American and she was checking on me and she said, how are you doing? I'm not doing well. How are you doing? Mm-hmm. That meant so much to me. And because everything I felt I, I always feel as an Asian American, it's hard to feel like a part of American history, as I said, um, because it is so black and white. And so to be an Asian and be like an ultra minority, sometimes you feel just neglected. Yeah. And so to have another Asian American friend say, hey, how are you doing? Because I'm not doing too great. But then I had another friend and these are the only two people who reached out to me at that time. My other friend, um, I call her Tina. Um, that's her nickname. Anyway. Uh, she called me and she said, Hey, I've been seeing what's going on 
Like, how are you doing? And also I want to deconstruct some things that are maybe going on in my mind. Can I, can I talk to you about it? And we had a really long conversation about growing, like me growing up in South Louisiana and how there, there were moments where I felt I couldn't really fully be myself. Like a lot of times, especially kids, you know, kids can be so mean and they can bully and, um, and kids say things that their parents say. You know, I, I mean, even as a fourth grader, I had someone ask me if I ate cats and dogs and I thought that was so mean at the time and I didn't understand. So for, for people to say dehumanizing things to you your whole life and to, to be the recipient of racism and then have someone who is white want to deconstruct certain, I guess, misconceptions that they have about Asians and Asian Americans, that was really, that was really powerful to me. Um, because they were taking the time to ask and not everybody wants to be asked that question, of course. Um, but me and me and that friend, we have a close relationship. I feel comfortable. She felt comfortable to ask me. I felt comfortable to answer her. Um, so if, if people have friends and family members who are different than them, who may be, have experienced different things than them, sometimes it's good to just talk it out and like have friends that want to deconstruct, um, especially race racist thinking or you know things like that I again I was raised in South Louisiana um I taught at a school um where I taught in the part of town that it was uh when I was, I was a theology teacher and the campus minister I was the first person of color that most of those kids ever had as a person of authority and um, I had a lot of Asian students it was a their small Vietnamese community in that small town of Louisiana and a lot of them felt for the first time like wow like I could be proud to be Asian. Like if, if Miss Krista could feel proud to be Asian. Um, So another thing that I would say is like, when you can put people of color in authority, do it because especially in communities where there are people of color who are not represented, you know, on the staff or on the board um, of the organization or the nonprofit. So I think things like that are, are, I, I noticed how it helped me and my community and the people who are around me. Well, and there's something to be said for that because of representation for the community to be able to see themselves in that leader. But there's also something to be said for now there's a different perspective, a different angle on, on and view of life filling out our understanding and, and giving us maybe a, a broader and more secure leadership structure. We're talking today with Krista Corbello. She is the um, the founder of Even This Way, which is a, a beautiful pro-life ministry, eventhisway.org. She's the president, the board president of Rehumanize International. You can also find her, if you want to bring her out to speak where you are, go to catholicspeakersofcolor.com. Uh, take a look at her profile, and she would love to come out and speak at your event, at your parish, your next conference, whatever you need. Find out more information by going to catholicspeakersofcolor.com. Krista, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much, TL. I appreciate you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Krista or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you just can't get enough, well, I've got good news for you. There's always a little bit more. Uh, Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. And in gratitude, we give them an extra segment each and every week. Uh, This week, we talk about the, the concept of butility. 
If that's intriguing to you, beauty and utility, uh, effective beauty is the the topic at hand, uh, then uh, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page, and learn how you can become an integral part of the work we do here and find some cool extras in the process. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention, as we do each week, to our readings from Scripture and from Church History. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium, the doctors, the fathers of the church, uh, papal encyclicals, and so much more right at your fingertips. Learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from tomorrow's Gospel, Luke 10. The Lord appointed 72 disciples, whom he sent ahead of him in pairs, to every town and place he intended to visit. He said to them, The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals, and greet no one along the way. Into whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this household. If a peaceful person lives there, your peace will rest on them. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the same house and eat and drink what is offered to you for the laborer deserves payment. Do not move about from one house to another. Whatever town you enter, and they welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God is at hand for you. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. And we read this today because of the part of the conversation earlier where we talked about our desire to kind of take control of the mission that God sets us on. I talked about how when we sit out front of of the abortion clinic, it can become very easy to feel like everything depends upon us. But there are a couple of things that I want to point out in this gospel. The first is that uh, he sends out the disciples in pairs. And I think that it's important for us to approach any of these these difficult issues, uh, even as we do it just in prayer, to do it not by ourselves, to remind ourselves that we are not the one in charge. We're not the sole person doing this. So he sent them out in pairs to the places that he intended to visit. So we have to remember that we are the advance notice bringing the good news that Christ is coming to visit the the people who we meet in the place where they are. And then the most important thing that he says to them basically is, you're reliant on my providence, right? Go in to whatever household will receive you. Don't take any extra money. Don't take any extra things just for your own security. Because everything is dependent upon divine providence, upon the will of God. And the faster that we come to realize this, the faster that we realize that we are going into a place to bring Christ and his kindness, because remember, Scripture says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When we, th- when we get that into our minds, that we are bringing the grace of God and the presence of God into the dark places of this world, and it's not dependent upon us to succeed, it's only dependent upon us to, to, to bring Christ, to be Christ-bearers wherever it is that we go. That makes all the difference and gives us the strength to continue to carry out the things that he's called us to, knowing full well that any effort that we have is all for him and all for his greater glory, and we don't have to bring it to completion. He's the one who does that work. Our reading from Church History Today comes from a a treatise on divine providence, speaking of, uh, by St. Catherine of Siena. With a look of mercy that revealed his indescribable kindness— 
God the Father spoke to Catherine. Beloved daughter, everything I give to man comes from the love and care I have for him. I desire to show my mercy to the whole world and my protective love to all those who want it. But in his ignorance, man treats himself very cruelly. My care is constant, but he turns my life-giving gifts into a source of death. Yes, I created him with loving care and formed him in my image and likeness. I pondered, and I was moved by the beauty of my creation. I gave him a memory to recall my goodness, for I wanted him to share in my own power. I gave him an intellect to know and understand my will through the wisdom of my Son, for I am the giver of every good gift, and I love him with a Father's constant love. Through the Holy Spirit, I gave him a will to love, that he would come to know with his intellect. In my loving care, I did all this so that he could know me and perceive my goodness and rejoice to see me forever. But as I have recounted elsewhere, heaven had been closed off because of Adam's disobedience. Immediately after his sin, all manner of evil made its advance throughout the world. So that I might commute the death consequent upon his disobedience, I attended to you with loving care. Out of provident concern, I handed over my only begotten Son to make satisfaction for your needs. I demanded supreme obedience from Him so that the human race might be freed from the poison which had infected the entire earth because of Adam's disobedience. With eager love, He submitted to a shameful death on the cross. And by that death, He gave you life. Not merely human life, but divine. That reading comes from St. Catherine of Siena, from a dialogue on divine providence. And this is the crux of it. Here, he says to St. Catherine of Siena, and he says to us, he reveals his kindness. He reveals his deep and abiding love and his desire for all of us, all humankind, to see and to know that kindness. Now, you and I, we who have experienced his love, who have the Eucharist, who are able to commune with him, we who have been gifted with his Holy Spirit through baptism and then strengthened at confirmation, you and I have the ability and the opportunity to take that kindness and take it to those dark places that otherwise would not know it that we can go and be invested in sidewalk counseling, that we can go and be invested in prayer, whether that be a 40 days for life or spending time in adoration over the topic of praying that God would, uh, would make manifest, would help our society better to recognize the dignity of the human person in all its forms. Or perhaps to be involved in advocacy, whether working with a pregnancy resource center or working with uh, vigils and praying for an end to the death penalty, or whether that be working towards uh, racial justice. Whatever the way that that is, we have the responsibility with the power of the Holy Spirit, graced by God, to go out and bring Christ into the places that are broken in our world. 
Don't forget to come over to our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls. We have all kinds of links from rehumanize international to even this way to Catholic speakers of color. So much more. So come and check out those links and join the ongoing conversation. That's all the time we have for this week. Today's show is brought to you by Eileen Herman and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and learn more. Until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.